You're listening to Solving Climate Naturally. Join us as we unpack nature's role in tackling climate change and talk to the people leading the way. Before we kick off, it's important to mention that this episode was recorded in January 2022. We are excited to release it now and hope you enjoy the conversation with Aaron. Welcome to Solving Climate Naturally, where we speak with experts and leaders at the cutting edge of natural climate solutions and help demystify this growing field. We're your hosts. I'm Kate. I'm Ida. And I'm Julia. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Aaron Bloomgarden, Executive Director and Co-Founder of Emergent, a nonprofit intermediary engaging tropical forest countries in the private sector to mobilize finance and support emissions reductions in deforestation. Emergent had a big year in 2021, which we are excited to dive into. Beyond his work at Emergent, Aaron has been involved in carbon markets since the early 2000s and has held a wide variety of roles across environmental markets, climate finance, and impact investing. We'll get into all of this very soon, but for now, welcome Aaron to Solving Climate Naturally. Thanks so much, Kate. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invite. So Aaron, you have had such an interesting career and you've done all sorts of different things in the nature-based solution space. We'd love to understand, you know, where did your interests stem from and what were the different steps to where you are today? So I've always been really interested in nature and the environment. I think it started in, in college, really traveling to the developing world and, and realizing that a lot of those people are very poor, uh, but also very happy in many ways. And, you know, maybe realize if you have the essentials, if you have clean water, clean air, clean food, you don't need much more. And, and so it really started there. I, you know, I've been a surfer for about 20 years now and in California where I went to college, you know, you wouldn't surf after, after the rain because of all the runoff. And so just really connected to the environment. And so you know, when I graduated graduate school, where I studied environmental science and policy uh, at Columbia, I really decided that I wanted to figure out a way to bring finance and business to solving some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges and really climate change I identified early as really the key. And as you mentioned, I've been involved in carbon offsets and carbon credits and climate finance for almost 20 years now. And in the early days of the Kyoto Protocol with the CDM, I was involved in all sorts of different projects from methane to renewable energy. But I was always really fascinated and drawn to forests and forest carbon. It just felt like there were so many co-benefits aside from just the climate benefit, which is remarkable, right? The the ability, what we now know of the ability for nature-based solutions, which by the way, at that time, we didn't call nature-based solutions, uh, to really drive scale into solving the climate challenge. That's really important. But beyond that, the role of forests and nature in providing other benefits to people, to communities, to biodiversity, to local environmental quality. And so I was always really drawn to that. And then, you know, I was in Bali, I think it was 2000, was it 2011, I believe, was uh, the COP where they basically launched onto the world stage the concept of Red Plus, or reducing emissions from forest degradation and deforestation. And I had been investing at that time in some forest projects and got really interested in how could we 
really move this interest in carbon markets into to supporting forest protection. And um, well, the story was the carbon price really dropped quite significantly. The CDM contracted also quite significantly. And the focus of global carbon markets really moved away from the EU and CDM and really to other places like California. So the idea of Red Plus kind of took a big pause and now we're about you know 10 years later and we're back at it. And we're back at kind of mobilizing even larger scale finance than we w- were in those early days to Red Plus. But it's been a, as you say, I mean, it's been a, it's been a journey to get here. And I think there's been increasing recognition on my side. And I think globally of the role that forests and nature play in the climate challenge. Thank you for sharing that, Aaron. And and quick, before we keep going, can you define CDM and what is it? How is it different than Red Plus, just for our listeners who may not be familiar with, with that term? Sure. Yeah. So the CDM stands for Clean Development Mechanism. That was or remains one of the three flexible mechanisms under the Kyoto Protocol. And the CDM would allow for the development of emission reduction projects in the developing world to get credited through the CDM mechanism, which was managed by the UNFCCC. And those projects could generate credits that could be sold into the primary market really was the EU emissions trading system, the EU carbon market. And so that was a very active market, let's say from 2005 through 2012. And then when the EU price kind of collapsed, there really wasn't a, a lot of demand. And now the EU has really doesn't really allow much or any CDM project credits. The CDM is still around. It was, in fact, a key point in Glasgow. But really, it was I would say it was the first really large-scale, robust carbon offset crediting mechanism. Great. That's helpful context. And, um, you know, you have had a long career in the carbon markets and you were very early to it, right? Um, developing projects with uh, eco-securities back, back in 2004 and working on the CDM. I'm curious to understand how has the market changed? What are the biggest changes that you have experienced or that you've seen from back then to today? And what lessons did you take away that inform your work now? Thanks for that question. It's a great question. So I guess we could call what's happening now carbon markets 2.0. And if 1.0 was defined as, let's say, the period between 2004 through 2010, and now we're have, we have a resurgence, it's not that it went away, but it's, um, it's evolved. So that carbon market 1.0 was really informed by the Kyoto Protocol. And the Kyoto Protocol was... I guess you could call it a top-down mechanism where you have industrialized countries all agreeing to legally binding emission reduction targets. And the rules of the road were negotiated and, and defined by the UNFCCC. And, and so those negotiations took kind of very important, important role on how credits would be traded, how these markets would be structured. But it was very much top-down. And so there was a lot going on in terms of, for example, the CDM, as we just talked about, the executive board of the CDM had quite a lot of let's say, influence and power over what projects would get credited and and what sectors would get credited and things like that. So you had very much a sort of top-down approach. The Kyoto Protocol failed, evolved, right? I mean, it, it was recognized that, or at least the model of Kyoto sort of failed because there was no enforcement mechanism. If a country decided, you know, a country had an election, decided, hey, we're not going to meet our Kyoto obligations, 
there's no recourse. There's the international community is not taking them to court. There's no, you know, there aren't like UN soldiers with blue helmets going in to hold their feet to the fire. And so fast forward now to the Paris Agreement. And the Paris Agreement recognized that sort of real politic and said, we need a different approach. And so the approach of the Paris Agreement was more bottom up and basically said, all right, well, the UN doesn't have enforcement. We don't have a global enforcement mechanism here. But what we do have is we have convenient power and we have the ability to you know, hold people accountable, even if we can't enforce it. And so the Paris Agreement basically said, all right, you know, we all agree this is a problem. Every country should be doing what they can, as much as they can, to address the climate crisis. And, and so every country puts forward a plan called a nationally determined commitment, right? So it's a commitment determined by each country. And the UN creates the rules for what those plans should look like, what, what can be in them, and, uh, and how they all fit together and sort of collates and calculates whether or not we're on a pathway to a safe climate under 1.5 degrees. In this bottom-up approach, instead of having this concept of a single global carbon market, the concept is very much disaggregated. So countries can, in fact, are encouraged to use carbon pricing as a tool to meet their climate goals. So we're seeing that we're seeing the sort of expansion of carbon markets and carbon pricing in jurisdiction, in different jurisdictions, different countries, different regions, states, even industries. And so we've got a we have a market in California. We still, of course, have a market in the EU. We have now a market, you know, with Brexit. We now have a carbon market in the UK. We have a market in Korea, New Zealand, and et cetera, et cetera. And, and we're seeing more and more of these types of markets coming online with different rules, different use or thinking around using carbon offsets, which would be where nature-based solutions really would fit in. And, and so that's one big dynamic. The second dynamic, I would say that's, that's quite different. So that, that one from top down to bottom up is, is sort of the first. The second one is the evolution of the voluntary carbon market has really accelerated over the last few years. So the voluntary carbon market, so this is where companies will buy, largely companies, but it could be individuals or public sector or, or any organization, buying carbon credits to offset or mitigate some of their emissions profile. And so the voluntary carbon markets are not new. They've been around for a long time. I don't know, I forget what year the VCS, which stands for Voluntary Carbon Standard, was set up. I might have been around 2010. So they've been around for a while. But for, for most of that time, it was a fairly small market, pretty niche. And it was really driven by, let's say, the whim of corporates in their, we could say, corporate philanthropy, right? Could we, you know, can we put a, a nice picture on our website in our annual report about, a carbon project that we invested in and then kind of move on to something else next year. There was some activity when we thought that there might be like a U.S. federal cap and trade program as like a pre-compliance, but that was short-lived. And so most of the activity was, especially around nature-based solutions, was around this voluntary piece. The big thing that's changed, which is pretty remarkable, if, you know, if you think about it, is companies are really coming online in terms of acquiring, using, purchasing voluntary carbon offsets. And so why is that the case? Why is there so much more demand from companies that don't have a regulatory obligation, right? They're not required to do this by like in a cap and trade program, like for example, an energy company would be in California or Europe. 
these would be companies that you would read about, you know, Microsoft or Amazon or HSBC or et cetera, companies that don't necessarily have a, you know, huge emissions profile. Nevertheless, they are offsetting, they're using offsets, you know, and, and, and out acquiring offsets. And so why is that the case? And why is that different? And so I think what's evolved over the last few years is there's many more pressures and forces on companies to meaningfully address the climate crisis. And this is, whereas it may have previously just been a nice marketing thing, it's now mission critical. Their customers are asking for it. Their employees are asking for it. The financial markets are asking for it through disclosure. Their insurance companies are asking for it. We are now, thankfully, past the days where a company can just dismiss the idea of climate action. And and they have to really take uh, real meaningful action within their own operations. And for many, carbon offsets and nature-based carbon offsets are part of that solution. One of the challenges, of course, is this really, I don't want to say it all came out of nowhere, but it really ramped up very quickly, I would say, over the last 18 to 24 months. And so the let's call it the institutions to support that, uh, in, in some respects, are still catching up. For example, the SBTI, which stands for Science-Based Target Initiative, which basically sets out guidance around how, how companies should be thinking about aligning their climate action with targets that are informed by science, how they should be thinking about using offsets, how they should be thinking about um, things like that are still evolving, right? They're still developing their their industry methodologies and guidance and, and things like that. And so even the offset standards are still evolving, but it's a really exciting space. And I think it's in the last 18 to 24 months, we've seen a huge resurgence, not only on the voluntary side, but also on the compliance market side. Back on the compliance side, I mean, we've seen a huge uplift in the price over the last 18 months, the price of carbon in, frankly, in all of the, just about all of the compliance markets, right? The EU, California, the Northeast of the US, which has what's what's called REGI, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. So a very exciting time in this carbon market 2.0. That's so fascinating. So we'd love to understand, so you're now at Emergent, which is sort of part of, you know, in a way, occupying sort of the interstitial tissue in this space. Tell us what is Emergent, what do you, what are you doing there? And, and you know, how, how is addressing the, some of these issues that you've laid out? So Emergent is a nonprofit that's designed to channel large flows of private capital into protecting the world's tropical forests, right? And so how do we how do we do that? And I want to also come back to the question you asked previously as part of this answer, which is some of the lessons we've learned because, or I've learned, let's say over the last 20 years, which we've tried to apply to Emergent. Emergent's mission, right? We're mission focused as a nonprofit. The mission is to reverse deforestation. The thesis is we need to change the economics on the ground, right? We need to make forests, what we like to say, make forests worth more alive than dead, not always the case, but that's basically the principle. We need to change the incentives on the ground, the economic incentives on the ground. How do we do that? We very simply, we go to, I should, before I say this, we only work at the jurisdictional level, meaning we don't work with projects, we work with jurisdictions, so countries or large states. And so the way we work is the following. We go to a country or a state and we say, if you commit to reducing deforestation, your deforestation rate, and you can get that reduction verified to a high quality standard, which is called the architecture for red transactions. That will generate carbon credits, which we will, emergent, will purchase over 
a forward, you know, over, let's say a five to 10 year period. So that gives the jurisdiction the assurance that if they take that action, if they increase their ambition on reducing deforestation, they'll get paid. So that would be our supply side. And then we we sell those credits to to buyers, right? So those buyers can be largely, at the moment, they're large private companies like Amazon or Bayer, or now we're working with about 20 companies. And so that's the fundamentals on how Emergent works. Now, last year, we launched an initiative called the LEAF Coalition. And what that is, is it's a public-private partnership where it's the same thesis, and we've, we've brought together 20 companies now and also three donor countries. So it's the US, UK, and Norway. And the, and the, the companies, so the 20 companies, are committing to purchase credits from Emergent via this LEAF initiative over a five-year period. And the, the countries, the donor countries, US, UK, and Norway, are also committing to purchase, but as a buyer of last resort, right? So they're basically saying, Emergent, you know, we're going to sign a five-year contract into the future, offtake from the forest countries. Part of that supply is already committed to the companies that are pre-committing in LEAF. Then part of the volume is underwritten by the donor countries. And Emergent's role is to go out into the market and sell the credits that have been underwritten by the donor countries. If we don't sell them, if the market's not, you know, hasn't evolved to that point yet, then the US, UK, Norway will act as a buyer of last resort and they'll pay for the credits. They don't won't take delivery of the credits, but they will they'll pay for them. So that really acts as a market catalyst, which allows us to add liquidity into the market. And the whole idea is really about increasing ambition, quite frankly, on both sides. So coming back to the question you asked, which were, you know, what what were some of the lessons that we've learned over the last 20 years? Well, one is integrity and quality. And that really needs to be uncompromising, right? And so since almost the very beginning of carbon markets, we've put high integrity standards on the supply, right? That's got to go third-party verification to prove that the credits are real, additional, third-party verified, et cetera. What we've done with LEAF is said, we need to ensure that also the buyers, the corporates also have high integrity standards to ensure that they're doing everything that they can within their own value chain to reduce emissions and then only using offsets for residual emissions. All right. So, so that was key. And so we've, we've published five criteria that in order for corporate to participate in LEAF, they have to meet those criteria. So that's, I, I think is one lesson. Another lesson is in, especially in voluntary carbon credits, you know, it acts like a commodity and in, in many respects, it is a commodity, but it's different than a traditional commodity in that the output, the physical credit itself, the physical commodity is not used in the production of something else as would be a traditional commodity. So the value of a voluntary carbon credit is not necessarily in the delivery of the credit, although there is a concept of delivery. The value is really on the impact on the creation right? The impact we're having on the ground. So that's why it's so important to have these high integrity standards. But also beyond that, that was why it was important for us to make Emergent the nonprofit to ensure that that impact is, is, is retained. You know, we show up as Emergent, we're counterparties in these transactions, but we show up not working for either side. We actually, you know, we show up in as a counterparty in these transactions, really representing the environment, which is kind of a, a cool place for us to be, right? 
everything that we're doing in this negotiation is to, and in these transactions is to further maximize environmental impact and impact to communities. A third piece I would say is the value of a coalition and not just a, you know, not just a coalition of companies, but a public private civil society coalition. And so emergent in cooperation with environmental defense fund, we've since brought on lots of other partners from on the, on the civil society side, NGOs work very closely with lots of, of other NGOs in the coalition itself. As I mentioned, we have 20 companies, three countries, ultimately the supplier countries will also be part of the coalition. And so there's a recognition that to really drive impact and scale, there's not one company, one government, one NGO that can do it alone. So getting everybody moving in the same direction is really important. And there is, I think, collective wisdom. And from, a, from just a very practical perspective, there's also value for the participants, right? From a reputational perspective to be working together, right? And so yeah, that's what we've tried to create with Emergent and with LEAF. Why is intermediation required in the first place for jurisdictional credits? You know, why yeah. can't a company just go directly to the jurisdiction and, and purchase this? Can they do that? Yeah, a company, a, a company can definitely can definitely do that. So the value, I'd say a few things. One is most companies don't want to go directly to a jurisdiction and negotiate a contract for a commodity that they're really not familiar with, right? This is not the core business of most companies. And most companies don't necessarily want to be facing a, a sovereign country uh, for, for an offtake like this. We can do that. A, we're set up to do that. And B, we've got the support of other sovereign countries, right? US, UK, Norway, and a collective group of companies. Second is this coalition approach. So a company can, can do it, but if a company A went to country B and did a standalone deal, there's quite a lot of risk in, in that, both from a financial uh, perspective, right? If that deal falls over, but also from a reputational perspective. And so working through a sort of portfolio approach, we've, we, um, I should have mentioned we did a call for proposals where we got 35 proposals from forest jurisdictions to supply credits to LEAF. So there's this sort of portfolio approach, which I think is really important. And then there's part of that, co that coalition is knowledge sharing, which is also, I think, quite important. And then third is, so there's the transaction, but there's also what happens with the money once you pay a jurisdiction. And so one of the challenges, I mean, there's huge benefits of working at the jurisdictional approach. First and foremost would be scale. But one of the challenges is ensuring that the money is used properly. And so we're building a whole fund management and monitoring system that a company, just one company wouldn't necessarily have the capacity to do it. But company can do it themselves, but I think they are seeing the value in doing it through emergent. And then I would also say on the other side, on the forest country side, I think the supplier countries, instead of facing just one company or having 10 different contracts with companies, I am facing Emergent, which is an NGO, which they know is in this for, is not going to compromise on quality, is working with other donor countries, I think is also attractive to the supplier countries. Aaron, one of the questions I want to ask you, and you mentioned just briefly in terms of you know, finance and, and making sure that the money goes to where it's intended. One of the criticisms I've heard around jurisdictional approach is that the money goes to those leading the jurisdiction and not to communities on the ground. But actually, maybe you can dispel that notion or just help correct that, that criticism. How much of that finance does end up going to communities on the ground? Where does the finance end up going once it's given to the jurisdiction? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So the first thing I say is there are safeguards, right? There have been safeguards that have been negotiated at the UNFCCC level to make sure that these programs include benefits sharing to the community. So I say, yeah, that's sort of the baseline, but we want to go beyond that. We want to make sure that there's a really robust engagement and benefit sharing with communities and that they the funds get as close to the ground as they possibly can. And so we're asking jurisdictions to share with us what their benefit sharing plans are, what their approach is to reducing deforestation. And in the selection process, we know that the companies are interested in countries or jurisdictions that do a better job with that. And that will all you know, be memorialized and, and tracked. So I think that's our you know, role in this in terms of influencing what happens on the ground. We need to recognize that ultimately it's pay for performance. And so Emergent and LEAF will pay after a credit is issued, which happens after the deforestation is reduced. So in many respects, it's up to the jurisdiction to determine how they want to deploy that money, but they, it needs to be within those safeguards and it needs to be within the benefit sharing plan that they've agreed with us. We will be using third-party financial intermediaries that will have experience working on the ground in these countries to deploy the money. So another thing that we'd be curious to understand is, do you consider emergent a near-term intervention, or do you think of it as something that we need in place indefinitely to continue to facilitate this flow of capital towards nature-based solutions? Look, that's a great question. You know, when we found this, the concept was to catalyze a market and kickstart a market. The way that market evolves, to be honest, I'm agnostic, and I think our board is agnostic as well. If emergent is needed, and this is this model that we have is so valuable to the sellers and the buyers, then we'll keep it, we'll, we'll grow it, and we'll maintain it, we'll support it. There's another version of this where we kickstart a market and there's hundreds or thousands of nodes and other activity happening all over the place. Frankly, I'm agnostic. This concept and the reason I've, you know, I, I was part of developing this concept is for impact and the recognition that we're all moving or have been moving far too slowly to address both climate and deforestation challenges. And so that's what this is about. We're open to how that happens. And as a nonprofit, we're sort of agnostic. If the most impact is through us growing this platform and enabling this to keep going, terrific. If it's, you know what, job done, let's pack up and let the market take over. That's also fantastic. And just quickly on scale. So last year, there was the, the 1 billion target that was announced and reached. What's the long-term vision in terms of scale or, or scope? And what's the, the type of capital that would be catalyzed? <laughs> that, no, it's what's a great question. It's a great question. So we have created a partnership with EDF, Forest Trends, and UN Red, which is called the Green Gigaton Challenge. The first goal is a gigaton over the next five years, a gigaton from high quality jurisdictional red. That's the initial t challenge. I think we ultimately need a gigaton per year to really support net zero deforestation and the transition to net zero deforestation. So that's ultimately the scale. So that would be at $10 a ton, that would be $10 billion a year. Aspirationally, that would be the target for the overall market, right? Not necessarily just emergent, but just the overall, like what do we need? What kind of fund flows? would we like to see to support high quality jurisdictional red plus activity? And, and just taking 
And to that, so speaking of high quality, what makes LEAF high integrity? A few things, but um, I would say one is this idea of the, the, you really want to be on a trajectory to net zero. The countries or jurisdictions, they need to be, again, on an arc down to net zero. And so the ART standard basically has a, a ratchet down every five years. You know, that's the first thing. Second thing is there's not a, an ability to game the baseline, which has been the criticism of some carbon projects in the sense that you can't create your own baseline. The baseline is created by a five-year historic average of the deforestation rate. So, you know, a lot of projects, there's sort of ability to like make different choices that change where the baseline is. And then look, there's other things around ensuring that you're using the right scientific basis. You have conservative buffer adjustments, third-party verified. You have scientifically informed stakeholder committees all the things that make a, you know, a really robust high quality standard. I want to ask more about art. This is pretty, pretty niche, but we had Francis Seymour on one of our previous episodes who talked a little bit about the development of, of the tree standard, which is obviously relevant to emergence jurisdictional work. So could you get a little bit in the weeds here and why is this a standard of choice? What problem is it solving? And why do you think that the art tree standard will be successful where other red efforts may have, have fallen short. What what problems is it solving? So the need for art was identified in the development of what's become emergent. And then the development was funded by the funders that also funded emergent. Emergent and art are separate entities, separate governance, but really were created together, or let's say art was created as a result of the development of emergent. And I think we recognize that there needed to be a new standalone standard to support what we were trying to do. Namely, a standard that was built from the bottom up to focus on jurisdictional red plus. There were other jurisdictional red standards out there, but they were not really built from the bottom up to be jurisdictional standard. They were built to kind of think about how projects can get nested within a jurisdictional framework, which is needed. But art was really built with, okay, if you look at a jurisdictional program, what's the best way to credit that? So at the time we had VCS, JNR plays an important role, but we were looking a bit more at how do projects get nested. And then you had the World Bank, which at the time they were doing jurisdictional programs through the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility. But we're not really thinking, at, the, at least at that time, about creating a fungible credit that could be traded into a carbon market and sold to a, a, a corporate. And so that was the gap we needed to fill. That's why the funders, which were at the time Rockefeller Foundation in Norway, initiated the development of the Artrees standard. It was created, as far as I can tell, in a very robust way with you know, lots of stakeholder input informed by a lot of science and with, <laughs> with a great chair in Francis. And then this concept, the theory of change was also tying it to emergent, not in a formal relationship, but insofar as emergent, emergent was created to really drive the market. So the theory of change is intended to be a, I guess you say virtuous cycle, right? You've got the standard increasing ambition and you've got emergent, which is driving the market. Not to say there's not, won't be other good standards or aren't other good, other good standards in the market. There certainly are, but I think the proposition of emergent and art together is a, uh, compelling theory of change. And I would just say, I think they've taken a very hard look at the standard uh, and concluded that this is 
perhaps the high, highest integrity standard out there for Red Plus. So that kind of validates the approach. Aaron, I'm, can you give us a little bit more insight when you're applying this approach and this standard? Who are you, emergent or others, typically working with in tropical forest countries? Is it other project developers, the president's office, the Ministry of the Environment? And then given the focus on scale and the need to make immediate impact in this critical decade, how long does it take to set up one of these projects? What's the process look like and what are the challenges that can come up? So, I mean, on the, on the second question first, you know, it's important to remember we're not starting from square one here. I mentioned Bali, the Bali COP more than 10 years ago. Since then, there's been a lot of money that's donor money, largely, that's gone into what's been called red readiness and capacity development in, in many of these countries that we're talking to. So in many respects, we're sort of leveraging off of 10 plus years of work already that's happened on the ground. And many of these countries have programs that are either already in place or well along the path in their design pathway. Some are more ready than others and can move more quickly. Just about any carbon ver offset verification, in my experience, it takes six to 12 months, even a small scale, easy project. And jurisdictional program will be, by definition, more complex. There'll be more going on. So I think we're looking at 12 to 18 months, probably from the point that a jurisdiction decides to go through the archery standard until they get through it. Could be longer, could be maybe a bit shorter, but I think that's probably a good rule of thumb. The first ones are just starting now, so we'll see. Who do we typically deal with is very often it would be the red focal point in the countries, but there's lots of different intersection points or engagement points. Very often it, it will go up to the president's office or prime minister's office for ultimate approval. Usually that red, red focal point is sitting in the Ministry of Environment, might be sitting in a, in a forestry ministry. Often the Ministry of Economy will get involved. And then we'll also engage in many instances with civil society on the ground. And then lastly, for this fund management piece, we're also working with financial intermediaries. These organizations are typically those that have been accredited by the GCF, which is the Green Climate Fund, for example. So it could be like UNDP or the World Bank or something like that, an organization that operates on the ground, or it could be a local development bank, for example. Could you talk to us a bit more about the, the fund management piece and, and what exactly that means? How capital from other sources outside of the corporates themselves are, are involved in these projects? So it's important just to underscore the, the model of Emergent and Leaf is not investing upfront or financing activities upfront. It's payment ex post. So we're paying after the reductions have happened and when the credits are, are delivered. And that's a very deliberate decision. There are a lot of organizations, private and public, that are happy to provide technical assistance, invest upfront. Our role in this is really to make sure that the long-term demand is available. When we make a payment, broadly, there's two things that we want to make sure of. One, that kind of the bad things don't happen, things like fraud, embezzlement, things like that. We want to avoid that with zero, you know, zero tolerance for any of that. And then we want to make sure that good things do happen, which is to say, we want to see that the money is channeled into climate positive activities, activities that support the forest, and importantly, activities that are in line with the country's NDC, which is that plan for the Paris Agreement that these countries are, are preparing that I mentioned earlier. So that's kind of the, 
the threshold. So when we talk about fund management and monitoring, that's really what we're doing. You know, ex post after we make a payment, making sure that those payments are used properly. Got it. Got it. And in terms of the upfront financing that is provided, is it coming from governments, from development finance institutions, from other private capital providers? Can you just maybe make that that a little bit more concrete for listeners? It's uh, it's coming from all of the above. You know, there is donor money that's available, both public and private. We know there's a lot of philanthropies that are really interested in supporting jurisdictional Red Plus programs. There's also donor government money available, including from the donors that are involved in LEAF and, and beyond. There are development bank funds that are available, and there's more that are being mobilized. And there's private sector funds. I mean, we talk to a lot of investors, and they're really very interested in helping out and mobilizing. And this could be private investors, but also corporations. So some of the corporates that are in LEAF are also interested in providing support up front. And that's why we haven't, even though we've been asked, could we create like a emergent fund that could provide, we want to keep our role in this very clear and clean in that we're providing the long-term demand signal. We're not providing the, the upfront capital. You know, I, I spent a long time in impact investing. And, and one of the lessons learned from that is there's a lot of creativity out there. You could do a lot of like really creative financial structures but nothing happens if you don't have the fundamental business model. In other words, if there's not a revenue stream to pay back an investor, you can get as creative as you want, <laughs> but there's no financial structure that's going to work if there's not cash flow. You know, you asked about lessons learned. That's one of the key lessons I learned over the last dozen years of trying to invest in Red Plus is a lot of great Red Plus. Yeah, at the time, you know, after Bali Cop for 10, 15 years, a lot of great Red Plus projects out there really passionate, highly skilled entrepreneurs who have ex- had experience in the field, whether it be Indonesia, Brazil, and, and all these tropical countries. I think there were probably 50 Red Plus projects going on. I, ca- I counted at one point, all deserving of finance and deserving of support. And I was managing a carbon fund and was really looking to invest in them. The challenge, no matter how good the developer was, how good the project was, how impactful whatever was happening was on the ground, challenge was always, is there a long-term demand for the credits once they're produced? And that's where we kept getting hung up. Sure, you know, a lot of these developers would have a buyer for one year or maybe two years, but not long-term not long-term demand. And there was no liquid market to sell this into. So that was always the constraint. And that's really what we aim to solve with Emergent. Yeah. I mean, I think you're exactly right. To your point, there's, there is a lot of capital out there if you have an investable project that has that long-term offtake secured. Exactly. Last follow-up, I promise. What is either that you've seen or that you anticipate that ratio between the public and private capital coming into these deals? Look, I would say there's no jurisdiction that's gone through this process yet. So there's been no investment that's been, let's say, underwritten on the back of a revenue stream, uh, a leaf or emergent revenue stream yet, because we're still in the early stages of getting these deals done. So I would say so far, the funding that supported the development of Jurisdictional Red Plus has been from public donor. And there you've got Norway, UK, Germany, a bit in the US, and a few other donor governments who have been really generous on that front, just because you haven't had a robust market. I think 
we'll start seeing increase of private sector financing as this becomes more of a market mechanism. That's our vision. No, thank you for that. That's super interesting. It really makes the operational and funding dimensions of this stuff really come to life. Um, so going back to some of your earlier comments about the role of corporates in this space, how should they think about projects versus jurisdictions? And why might a portfolio approach make sense in this context? Listen, like full disclosure, I spent almost 20 years developing projects and investing in projects. And I developed the first project that was issued credits under the CDM. So I've probably been involved in 20 or 30 projects. So I'm a big fan of projects. The reason I'm involved now in, in this jurisdictional approach is is impact and scale. I mean, that, quite simply. I would say there are lots of great projects, lots of great impact on the ground, terrific stories, whether it be community stories, biodiversity stories, important landscapes that are being preserved through projects, many projects that are deserve support. I think the jurisdictional approach, from my perspective, is how we solve climate change and how we reverse deforestation. To me, that speaks to a portfolio approach is you probably want to do both, right? A corporation, uh, especially a large corporation, we're just not going to get there, in, in my view. We've got, a, we've got a great story. You get some great isolated, localized impact via projects, nice pictures for the brochure, but we're not going to solve climate change with lots of little project investments. I just don't think we're going to get there. And I know because as a project developer, this was something that always was haunting me, you know, going to cops and being in rooms with thousands of people and, and thinking, God, we're just not moving fast enough. Right? And there's got to be another way. And so as, you know, the, as many challenges as a jurisdictional approach may have, to me, that's the way we have to go, right? We have to, if we're going to solve climate change in the time frame that we've got, and we're going to reverse deforestation in the time frame we've got, we've got to move to a jurisdictional approach. So to me, that's the most compelling reason to, that, to move towards jurisdictional approaches. And I think ultimately projects get nested. The good project developers I speak to are already talking to the jurisdictions that they're projects are in and thinking through how do they nest their projects. And this is also reflected in the negotiation, right, at the COPS and through the UNFCCC, where it's really conceptualizing the jurisdictional approach via the language coming out of Glasgow, which is, you know, the jurisdiction gets to authorize the way voluntary credits are used and things like that. And then the third piece would be just uh, much less interesting, but also important is it does solve some of the challenges and criticisms that have been levied against carbon offsets, moving from projects to jurisdictions. For example, leakage. Moving from projects to jurisdictions does not completely solve leakage, but it certainly makes it a lot better. Baseline, right? It doesn't completely solve the baseline issue, but it makes it a lot better. So it solves some of the key technical issues that projects have been criticized for. And, and look, having lived through this for a while now and really being a believer of this concept of offsets and red plus, right. And having seen it kind of surge and then be discredited and then come back. I just don't think we have the time to afford another cycle of this action getting discredited. And largely, I mean, there was a guardian article that came out just a few days ago. Largely, I think those articles are doing disservice to the reader doing a disservice to the climate and the environment because they're cherry picking the small portion that's doing it the wrong way, misinterpreting exactly what's happening and makes for easy headlines. Hey, offsets are bad, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, just back to the point, 
it's important we do this the right way. It's important that we solve the technical issues. It's important that we drive scale. It's important that we hold corporates to account in the sense that they've got to be increasing ambition, just like the, the suppliers need to be increasing ambition on deforestation. That's how we're going to solve climate change. And we can't afford for this to be discredited again. We need massive flows of capital in, into this. So, And that's part of what we're also trying to do. Thanks, Aaron. And one of the last questions before we head to our lightning round, <laughs> I'm curious, as you're setting up long-term offtake and demand, we read on the Emergent website that there's a sort of a LEAFS price floor guaranteed to projects. How do you generally think about setting this price floor? What's that right number? And as we expect demand to significantly outstrip supply, how do communities, jurisdictions benefit then from also the rising price in carbon over time if they're setting these contracts today? Well, just pick quick clarification. We don't offer a price floor to projects, just to jurisdictions. Now, there could be projects within the jurisdictions, but the concept of price floor works is a bit of what I explained earlier, which is Norway, US, and UK, the public donor countries, that's the way they are participating. They are providing this $10 so it's $10, but they're providing a buyer of last resort at $10 per ton. So anytime we enter into a an offtake contract with a jurisdiction, part of that offtake will be coming from corporates who are committing to a $10 fixed price. So jurisdiction is getting paid $10 for that. And then some of it will be secured by the donor government, which is also at $10, but that's a buyer of last resort. So for that portion, Emergent will be out in the market selling those credits at the market price. So if the market price is higher than $10, we'll sell them. And any, you know, that's important also, any profit that we get will go directly to the jurisdiction. So there's no margin. Emergent doesn't take any margin. That was another piece going back to the lessons learned. We need to avoid windfall profits in this whole system. There needs to be profit margin for private sector, but it can't be it can't be windfall profits in the sense that the communities can't be getting $3 when the final price is $30. You got to make sure that there's not a lot of middlemen. So the question is, how do we come up with that $10? So for a very long time, really, I would say a decade, the price that jurisdictions have been getting for jurisdictional Red Plus has been $5 per ton. That was from the Green Climate Fund. That was from donor pay for performance, bilateral contracts. And voluntary carbon prices were basically $3 to $6. So when we launched this beginning of last year, we said, we're going to pay double the market price. So we're going to pay $10. That sent, sent an important signal into the market. And I think that's a very competitive price. Now, our hope is that the price goes up over time. So our aim is that that accretion of value would flow back to the jurisdictions and back to the communities. What we're going to start doing very likely is have some form of a price discovery, whether it be through an auction or some open competitive things. The $10 was, hey, we're going to pay twice market price to send a strong signal. But ultimately, we need to find what the market price is as this becomes more of a market mechanism. So we're working on that. I would think we'll probably get there by you know, middle of this year towards the third or fourth quarter of this year, trying to figure out where the market price is for these credits. All right. In the very last minute, we're going to do our, our lightning round, which is rapid fire questions, five of them. The first one is, what is your favorite carbon sink? Forests. Obviously. <laughs> favorite book? Right now, uh, Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. 
Amazing. You have a, a, a trio of, of huge fans on the call as well. <laughs> if you had a magic wand, what would you change to scale natural climate solutions? Good question. What would I change? Um, well, it would be global compliance carbon markets that include robust provision for offsets from natural climate solutions. And what gives you hope? I mean, really, it's this huge resurgence in carbon pricing and the huge demand we're seeing in the private sector. And I would say these corporates are really moving in, in a big direction and not necessarily taking the cues just from the whims of the public sector, right? Elections and this and that, they're really moving. I think private sector is really recognizing that that climate change is a massive risk to the ability to thrive in this economy. So that gives me hope. And then a lot of great young people coming through and just huge interest in the space. And that's really hopeful too. I love it. Final question. What is your prediction for the biggest NCS headline of 2022? Uh, well, I guess I've got to say emergent and leaf, right? Doubling <laughs> I, I, uh, 2x plus our announcement in Glasgow. <laughs> Can't wait to see it. <laughs> That's all we've got today, Aaron. This was such a fun conversation. And thank you so much. Thank you. Joining. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining today's episode of Solving Climate Naturally. Check out our website, solvingclimatenaturally.com to see this episode's show notes, explore resources, and learn about upcoming episodes. Let us know what you think by connecting with us via email or Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.